This is Pastor Scott Obert for Spiritual Onion. Pastoral psychotherapy has been called the weed in the sidewalk of mental health. Why is that? My discipline holds in tension the spiritual and the psychological. On the one hand, the church is suspicious of depth psychology. After all, if Jesus is the answer, then why would anyone need psychology? And depth psychology often exposes bad theology. On the other hand, much of the psychological profession is suspicious of pastoral psychotherapy because religion is often viewed as infantile or irrelevant. Nevertheless, pastoral psychotherapy holds true to its discipline, taking the viewpoint that if we start with theology, we end up in psychology, and if we start with psychology, we wind up in spirituality. Further, with the advent of a psychological perspective, we now are able to better understand the depth of meaning in Scripture. So this particular podcast offers an example of this psycho-spiritual process. A few biblical stories have entered our collective consciousness, regardless of our religious heritage or lack thereof. So it is with Luke's recollection of the prodigal son. And despite the story involving two sons, we have paid little or no attention to the older son. If we do, it is usually to judge him for being petty, misguided, or ungrateful. But as we will discover, depth psychology provides us a better way to think about the actions of the older brother. And as Jung says, if we don't think, then we judge. This helps us understand the deficit in the church's stance. Without depth psychology, the church often has one answer, judgment. And younger generations are having nothing to do with it. Now, we need a no overview of the interaction of the father and the younger son so we can wisely think about the actions of the older brother. The younger son asks his father to give him his share of the family property, and the father agrees. Here is an example of the inadequacy of a literal interpretation of Scripture. For decades, Dr. Kenneth Bailey spent his adult life teaching in Middle Eastern seminaries. He traveled to small Middle Eastern villages and retold the parables of Jesus in order to witness the people's responses. Upon hearing the request of the younger son, Middle Eastern folk gasp in shock and horror. The younger son's statement means he can't wait for his father to die. Bailey writes, again and again, I have engaged in some form of the following conversation. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make a, such a request? Impossible. 
If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would become very angry and refuse. Why? This request means he wants his father to die. But this father is not angry, nor does he refu refuse the request. He just divides his property between the two brothers and himself, each receiving one-third. The text reads, A few days later, the younger son turned the whole of his share into cash and left home for a distant country. The boy leaves his people for a land of the Gentiles. We know this because it is a land where the Gentiles eat pork. Bailey relates that first-century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among the Gentiles and dared to return home, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out that he is cut off from his people. This ceremony was called the kazaza, literally the cutting off. After it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with such a person. Well, the text tells us that he wasted his money in spendthrift living. If you've heard sermons on this text, the typical preacher usually likes to slander the boy, saying he spent his money in immoral ways. How preachers love to judge people for what are called the hot sins, sex, alcohol, drugs, gambling, and so on. But let's stick to the te text and add the words of Aristotle. A prodigal means a man who has a single evil quality, that is, wasting his substance. This boy's timing is impeccable. About the time he is running out of money, a great famine hits the land, and his options are few. The text reads, So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed swine. Since the boy arrived with wealth in this new land, he is known as a man with money. Bailey explains further, They know from his dress and speech that he is a Jew. This means he abhors swine. If he has any honor left, he will refuse to feed them. The Middle East still detests the pig. The repulsiveness of the notion of feeding swine for one whose culture and tradition loathes pigs is difficult to communicate. But the prodigal is desperate. He accepts this despicable work. Well, it may not pay much because he is still starving. It's so bad he thinks about eating the miserable pods he is feeding to the pigs. In utter despair, he comes up with a plan. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your skilled craftsmen. 
Let's be clear. This son is not feeling sorry for his actions. He hopes to manipulate the situation so, with his father's backing, he can get a job. Bailey points out that the prodigal still does not understand his situation. He thinks the issue is the lost money. It isn't. It's the father's broken heart. The problem is not the broken law, but the broken relationship. Remember now that the prodigal has offended the entire village by his actions. Anyone in the village can stone the kid at first sight. At the very least, the kazaza ceremony will be enacted, cutting him off from the village. But the text reads, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Middle Eastern patriarchs do not run. The text actually says he raced. But patriarchs walk very slowly in a dignified manner. But to race? In doing so, he must lift the front of his robes like an adolescent, showing his legs in what is considered a humiliating posture. He shames himself in order to protect his son from the raging villagers. In the parable, the father likely represents God. Now, most of us have been handed the God image as one who has ultimate power. But the parable, like the example of Jesus himself, shows God as vulnerable, full of compassion, willing to empty himself of power in order to restore relationship with the prodigal. Just hold the image for a moment of God shaming himself. The father does not tell his son to go clean himself up. He orders his servants to bring the best robe, a sign that the boy has been fully restored as a son. He is given a signet ring as a sign of trust. Shoes on his feet identify him as a son, not a servant. Having been restored, there will be a community party. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now let us turn to the older brother. The younger son is home, rescued by the father. Now listen to our text. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Upon hearing that his brother has returned and that the father is celebrating, the older brother is filled with rage, a sign of narcissistic injury. What follows is his diatribe of slanderous falsehoods. He has not worked for his father. He has slaved for him, a complete distortion. He has never been given a party for his friends by his father. But we know the father is generous, graceful, and loving. But this son has never asked for one. He attacks his brother for spending his share of the property on prostitutes, which is a clear lie. Envy has raised its ugly head. Often people mistake envy for jealousy. Neil Burton points out that if envy is the personal pain caused by the desire for the advantage of others, jealousy is the personal pain caused by the fear of losing one's advantages to others or sharing one's advantages with others. Envy is covetous. Jealousy is possessive. The pain of envy is called not by the desire for the advantages of others per se, but by the feelings of inferiority and frustration occasioned by their lack in ourselves. Paradoxically, the distraction of envy and the dread of arousing it in others holds us back from achieving our full potential. Envy also costs us friends and allies and more generally tempers, restrains, and undermines even our closest, most intimate relationships. In some cases, it can lead to acts of sabotage, as with the child who breaks the toy that it knows it cannot have. Over time, our anguish and bitterness may give rise to mental health problems, such as depression, anxiety, and insomnia. And physical health problems, such as infections, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. We are quite literally consumed by our envy. Envy tends to be directed toward those with whom we compare ourselves, those with whom we feel we are in competition. As Bertrand Russell wrote, beggars do not envy millionaires, though of course they will envy other beggars who are more successful. Envy has never been a greater problem than it is today. Our age of equality encourages us to compare ourselves to one and all. And the internet and social media makes this all too easy, fanning the flames of our envy. And by emphasizing the material and the tangible over the spiritual and invisible, our culture is left with little to counteract this green-eyed monster. Our tribal ancestors lived in fear of arousing the envy of the gods, whom they placated with elaborate rituals and offerings. 
In Greek mythology, it is Hera's envy for Aphrodite that sparked off the Trojan War. In the Bible, it is envy from Cain that murdered Abel, and through the devil's envy that death entered the world. The envier is out of touch with his or her own sense of self, skills, talents, gifts, and character. Often there is the sense of inner emptiness, a hungry emptiness. So it is that the older brother does not realize what his father points out. My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. The older brother cannot hold on to the reality that his father loves him, that all that the father has is also his. There is yet another deadly aspect to envy. As we have heard in the parable, envy wants to hurt, damage, or destroy the envied. The other is not a person. The other is reduced to a thing whose skills, talents, or characteristics that the envier wants but does not have. Anne Ulanov, the Jungian analyst and Episcopalian priest, points out that Edmund Spencer portrays envy riding on a ravenous wolf, between his cankered teeth, a venomous toad. The poison runs all over his face, for death it was when any good he saw. The classical personification of envy is as a hater of others' joy or prosperity. Marlowe's envy says, I cannot read and therefore wish all books were burnt. Envy attacks, envy denies, Envy eviscerates. I am a rock and soul musician, largely a pianist, and I've used my musical talent in my congregations, often developing a more contemporary worship service or playing rock songs to enhance my sermons. In a number of congregations I have served, the organist has attacked me out of envy, usually behind the scenes, but sometimes erupting in public. Now, I am terrible at playing hymns. My talent does not encompass classical or religious music. So I have complimented and supported my organists, but they could not help but notice when people applaud my music and remain silent at their hymnody. They could not hold on to their own talent and envied mine. Certainly, envy is a major factor in anti-Semitism. Many of my high school friends were Jewish, and we continue to meet quarterly on Zoom. To a person, they are bright and successful businessmen, attorneys, creative artists, and the like. My Jewish friends are funny, generous, caring people. One of their great strengths is that at birth they have a built-in supportive community. And so they are easy targets for those who are not so bright, not so successful, and not so creative. They are easy targets for the disenfranchised and alienated. Tom Kapusinskis, a Jungian analyst, points out that envy often hides behind gossip. 
I have noticed that single folks often envy married folks, and married folks envy single folks. Envy is the deadliest of the seven deadly sins because it drives us to devalue ourselves and damage others. In 12-step groups, it is said that when I am in your head, I am out of my mind. Such a dynamic preps us to envy. In addition, dysfunctional families create envious people. On the one hand, dysfunctional families often do not help children develop as their own human beings. The children are trained to focus on what is going on with other people. It is difficult then as adults to focus on oneself and develop one's own life. A good round of therapy can reverse this psychological and spiritual disaster so that one now has a life worth living. And it takes time and work to develop one's own skills and talents. We can envy all we like, but without identifying and developing what we have been given, it may end up to be a bitter life. Finally, there is always someone brighter, prettier, more athletic, more musically inclined, funnier, and more successful. We all got what we got. Do with it what you can. Give it your best shot. Work hard. Learn from those who do it better than you. And I'll see you in two weeks. Go to yourspiritualonion.com for all the podcasts and to see photos of the great team who put these podcasts together. I do appreciate you taking time to listen. Can't buy me love, love, can't buy me love, buy you diamond ring, my friend, if it makes you feel alright, get you anything you want, my friend, if it makes you feel alright, cause I don't care too much for money, money can't buy me love. I'll give you all I got to give if you say you love me too. You may not have a lot to give when I got I'll give to you. Cause I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love, can't buy me love. Everybody tells me so, can't buy me love. No, 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 no. Just can't buy
for money. Money can't buy me no. 